Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is going to be really focused on really looking at performance, looking at evaluating and better understanding from a a more objective baseline intelligence and how that transfers over to performance athletically, but also kind of looking at how it generalizes into a lot of daily activities. So it's going to be a really engaging conversation with somebody who's a real innovator in this space. He's quite hilarious. He's a funny guy. He's highly educated, although his humility will shine through on that. He doesn't doesn't like to talk too much about the accolades that that he's accomplished, uh, which I really appreciate. But you know, he's he's got a couple of PhDs behind his name. He's somebody who's highly inquisitive. He actually comes from a, a similar circle of some of the people that I know. We have some mutual uh, friends out there in this space who are are real leaders. And today we're going to be talking, really unpacking, gaining a better understanding of really intelligence and in the field of athletics. So. Scott Goldman, thanks for joining us today. Mark, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to seeing where this conversation goes. So let's roll. <laughs> let's roll. I mean, you're there in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I am over here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And we're really excited to, to get going with this conversation and just see where it leads us. So, you know, for our audience, Scott, these are typically people who are just curious about brain health innovation. Like they're just, they're, they're, they're interested, man. They're curious. These are also people who may have had exposure to concussion, may have had, you know, stroke, and are just curious about rehabilitation, performance. And really today, we're going to dig in a lot more into evaluation and assessment. And that's going to be really, really exciting. So for the listeners today, maybe help us to understand what you're doing these days. Like, what <laughs> you know, you're doing a lot of interesting stuff in the world of assessment. And maybe we could start with, with the AIQ. Like, what is this exciting measure that we're hearing a lot about out there in the space? Yeah, gosh. All right. So let's kind of knock out the easy stuff first. Yeah. My day job, I'm the sports psychologist for the Golden State Warriors. And um, that's really enriching and rewarding experience just to be part of an organization that's doing some amazing things. So that's kind of like how I spend my days. And then Something that I've developed as a, I don't want to call it a hobby because it, it, it actually means a lot more to me than that. But my partner, his name's Jim Bowman, and I, back in 1998, kind of came up with this idea where we were just batting around, could we measure uh, sports-specific intelligence? And so that's what the AIQ ended up becoming. And um, now we're across all five major leagues. We're working with both uh, U.S. and Canadian Olympic facilities. We've worked overseas with some European football clubs or what we call soccer, right? And then also right. in Australia. And so it's been a, a really neat experience. I'm just so grateful because, you know, it started off really as a dream. It was like, God, wouldn't it be neat if we could do something like this? And then we did it. And then it was like, wow, I wonder what we can do with it. And now we're doing all sorts of really cool stuff. And, and you know, the original intention of it was there was two points of inspiration. Maybe that would help. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, thanks for the intro and the compliment. I think a lot of my humility comes from the fact that most of my family is from Canada. 
just outside of Hamilton. And so, you know, if, if you hear an A or a Z, you know, it's just, that's, that's near and dear to my heart. So you're all good here. You're, yeah. Most of our audience is in the United States, but there are, there are a few Canadians mixed in there as well as uh, uh, Euros and, and everything. So please, please continue. It's wonderful. Well, it's nice to be a North American, I guess. So um, the inspiration for the AIQ came twofold. When I was in grad school, learning about intelligence theory and learning disabilities and you know identifying giftedness and all that, the big debate was between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf. And the discussion was really about like, you know, Ryan Leaf was tabbed as the prototypical physical, you know, blueprint for a quarterback. Had a cannon for an arm, was big, he was strong, he was fast. And Peyton Manning just won, right? Like he was just a winner. And so there was a, and it's funny or, or odd to look back in history and go, gosh, it's amazing to think there was a debate there. So <laughs> I, I just said to myself, I kind of want to know if we're going to measure like hand size or how fast they run the 40, what about how they go about tackling the puzzle of sport, right? So that was, that was the inspiration number one. Inspiration number two was having been around athletics for most of my life, I noticed that most coaches, when you talk to them, they don't want to like mother F a player. Like they don't say, oh, I get great joy out of mother F and a player. And I've never really heard a player who would say, gosh, I just love getting just crushed. <laughs> and so I kind of, as a psychologist, I was always looking at that interaction, almost like an engineer where you're watching, say like a light switch, like you flip a light switch, but the light doesn't turn on somewhere. There's a break in the circuitry. And so I was going, you know, the teaching mechanism between coach and player, I think that there's something going on here where there might be a disconnect. And if we can help identify how players think, and normally when you hear that phrase, people will default to like a personality, like, oh, this guy likes to process out loud. Or and I'm going, no, no, how they actually think. Then we can do two things. One is we can put people in a position for success right? Like, oh, this guy might be better off as a pulling guard. And this guy might be better off as a zone blocker. So it's really like game tactics. But then it's also like, hey, what if we go about teaching them in installs during the week? And could we come up with a more productive way of doing that? So the talent identification was a really neat part. But then we added to it this talent development. And it was sort of like, I think we've got a way to help provide information so people can make more well-informed decisions. It sounds like so functional. Like that's the thing that, that was missing in a lot of the other, right? Like that, you know, you, you, you do your standard, you know, baseline test and my background, I, you know, I didn't realize we, we had such a connection around special education. That's definitely my background as well. Having been a, you know, a principal, I used to be called principal linebacker. Because I'm 6'2", 250, 260, standing there. Little do they know I'm like a softie and a nice guy. But like everybody's like, okay, that's your principal. Like, good luck. But, uh, you know, it's it really interesting as I think about that into, you know, a lot of kind of the rehabilitation space. When we think about assessments, a lot of assessments up until recently were not functional. Therefore, they oftentimes were not that useful, right? Well, to your point, I think what happened and continues to happen is you have a couple of different ways to get there. So sometimes you'll have people who've got a good idea, but they don't follow the rigors of empirically validated best practice. They go, 
you know what, this was an experience I had as a professional athlete. And so I'm going to create like a questionnaire or something. And it's got merit, but it doesn't have scientific backing. Then you have people who are phenomenal scientists, really like academic ivory tower kinds of minds, but they have no access to validate their measure, whatever that measure might be with such a specialized population. And then you have like a third bucket where um, what you have is a tried and true empirically validated practice or product that's really meant for some kind of impairment, like a learning disability or dementia. And then people go, well, if it helped slow the decline of cognitive functioning, I wonder what it could do to a healthy brain or even an athletic super brain. And sometimes that's like a good theory, but sometimes it's also like putting a Band-Aid on healthy skin. Like a Band-Aid on healthy skin doesn't make the skin better or more functional. In fact, you can make the argument putting Band-Aid on healthy skin could cause a sore. So it's really hard, I think, to try to put good best practice kind of science and make it applicable in this rarefied air. That's a challenge. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think it is. And maybe for you know people listening here today, maybe paint a bit more of a picture than how do we typically then in, let's say it's amateur sport, maybe it's collegiate sport. How do we tend to assess this level of function? We're pretty clear in the combine, the 40, the bench, right? These things, uh, the hand size, all these things. But cognitively, what do we typically do there? And, and how new is that? Really looking at, at that area, because it makes a lot of sense to me. And I love that you brought up, I'm aging myself now, Ryan Leaf and Peyton Manning, because I remember that. I'm like, oh, goodness, that was a long time ago. Maybe for some people, why, why don't you provide a little bit more context as to, as to what we're talking about? Yeah, so I, I think the tried and true and still predominant method is the eyeball right? So you've got coaches and scouts who are just watching game film. And and I think that's still where the majority of the assessment should be. What's interesting is there's things like recency bias. Like I'm fascinated by pro days, top 30s, on-site visits, and a guy can light it up and everybody's like, that's our guy. You know, like that's our guy. So that recency bias is huge. Then there's also confirmation bias where, you know, sometimes coaches will come to that conclusion where let's say a guy does it right nine out of 10 times, but the one time he didn't do it right was during the championship game. And the coach is like, you know what? This guy can't do that. So I think when it comes to talent identification and really kind of like a comprehensive athletic profile, it consists of a lot of different elements like size, speed, strength, and intelligence. And it's also really complicated And what we, with Jim Bowman, my partner and I, what Mm -hmm. we really focused on was, can we find a way to help amplify the signal and kind of diminish the noise? And what I mean by that is, if you're watching on film, a guy who's doing something and you go, huh, is he doing it with speed? Let's oversimplify it for a sec. You're Mm -hmm. watching somebody and you're going, he seems to be in the right place at the right time. Like principal linebacker. Yeah. It's like, God, this guy's just always, he's always at the ball carry. He's his contact point, his, you know, TFLs or tackles for losses. He's Bobby t- Wagner, Bobby Wagner. Yeah. Sure. I mean, like we can yeah. talk about a wide range. Yeah. I'm talking about you. I'm like principal yeah. linebacker. <laughs> this guy, you know, hit me a gap. 
some people go, oh, he's totally doing that because of his work ethic and he loves the game. Right. right and other right, people are right. going, oh, no, no, he's doing it because he's so strong and fast. And then other people are like, no, no, no. I think he's doing it because he studies like thousands and thousands of hours of game film. And so what we added to the mix was, I think he might also be doing it because he's able to see the most efficient way to get to the ball carrier and therefore is taking really intelligent pursuit angles to the ball. Exactly. And it's always, I should say, all. I, I try not to say always or never, but, <laughs> but um, I never Carol, say. Carol Dweck. Yeah, yeah. Growth but, mindset. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But what I would say is more often than not, it's some combination of these things. So the big question mark, right, is transferability. So, for example, if we're watching college film on a player and we go, man, when the game's faster and everybody's a little bit stronger and a little bit smarter, will he adapt to this next level or not? And that's a big question because some people might be able to adapt to the speed of the game, but not the sophistication of it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so incredibly true. And, and I mean, we, we go back to the old adage, you know, what gets measured gets managed, right? The record stuff, like it's so true. And the physical stuff, I mean, you know, full disclosure, that was definitely my interest when I, when I was playing sport, you know, whether it was football, basketball, whatever it might've been, it was about the physical because I could control that. And, and earlier on, we had, many of us had thought that, you know, what was, you know, in the brain was fixed, right? But we also can understand in some ways, some things can be trained up, whether from an injury or on the performance side, some of that. Now, assessing that, how quickly for people, because some of this is going to be a little bit mind-blowing for some people, because they may not have thought about it quite in this way yet. We can reliably then, I love what you said around the angle. I think that's such a good, incredibly good point. How do you assess these sorts of things? Like, like you know, how, how do we do that? We we know how we can assess the other physical tangibles. Tangibles is pretty easy. How about this? Well, and let's also put in an asterisk that even the physical physical measurables come with an asterisk. Like, for example, the forty yard dash is yeah. a great measure of speed, but that's also when someone doesn't have a ball in their hand, they're running in a straight line. Like, is it really football? specific or not right no so so i think that there's always this idea of like what's the fidelity of the lens so bringing it back to the aiq and what 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 jim bowman and myself what we did the first thing we did was we said okay we need to define what is sport not what is intelligence Mm. what is sport that was our first thing and that's a, a more challenging aspect than you would think so our first definition was Sport is really a constantly evolving puzzle in an ever mutating chaotic situation. So we said, okay, now that we've got that definition, let's come up with what are the cognitive abilities that are most needed and most beneficial in that situation. So we spent 15 years, like before we even brought it to market, we spent 15 years and we looked at not just sport, though we spent a lot of time in sport. We also looked at firefighters, first responders, police officers, military, airline pilots, fighter pilots. And then we, we, we came up with a good, solid profile, battery slash profile. Now, going back to your training in mind, we said, okay, what's the most predominant empirically validated theory in intelligence right now? And that's the Cattell-Horn-Carroll theory of intelligence. 
So for those that don't know the CHC theory, if you're familiar with the Wexler scales, the Woodcock-Johnson, the Stanford, like most intelligence tests that are being used to identify learning disabilities or giftedness are based off the CHC theory. So to your point of like, how are we measuring this? So we're not asking, do you like cats or dogs? We're not asking questions that are language-based. We're actually running them through a gauntlet that is based off of the empirically validated measures used in the CHC theory. The same way you wouldn't ask somebody how fast they are, you're actually running them through the 40-yard dash. So that took 15 years, right? Right. We followed the American Psychological Association's ethical guidelines for test construction. So that took a lot of time. And the reason why was we knew that you can't visually see intelligence like you can height. Like you can say, look, that dude's tall. You can't always say that dude's smart just by the way he looks. So we wanted to make sure that we were capturing at the highest of fidelity, the measure. So it took us a long time. What's really interesting is we we then brought it to market in 2012. And now we have a database population of over 7,000 professional athletes, including World Series winners, Super Bowl winners, NBA champions, like really talented people. So going back to that challenge we were talking about earlier, we were very fortunate because we hit a cool Venn diagram where Jim and, and myself, but really Jim, have this scientific rigor and training. But then I was one of the first embedded psychologists in an athletic department at the University of Arizona. There were six in the country at the time. And for the last 20 years, I've been as a day job from University of Arizona all the way to Gold State Warriors Day. I've been solely working with players and coaches. So like as a concrete example, one of the baseball teams that I worked with, the coach told me, he goes, look, the secret to hitting isn't swinging at a 95 mile per hour fastball. The secret to hitting is inhibiting that response to an 85 mile per hour curve. So we went that is really important. So when when we created our reaction time test, Mm. we didn't just measure for speed. We also measured for accuracy. And we didn't just measure a simple reaction time where it's like bang, bang, stimulus response. We also measured one where false information was present. Then we went and brought it to football. And football's like, man, this just reminds me of like a hard count, you know? So sure enough, when our database got large enough, we actually published not one, but two peer-reviewed academic white papers that were in peer-reviewed journals, right? And and to my knowledge, I haven't come across any other instruments. Like there's a lot of other instruments that will throw out science or they'll throw out statistics, but oftentimes it's them kind of juicing their own books, for example, where they're like, oh, hey, this guy. And I say that because I was the gatekeeper at all these places I worked and these products would come to me and I'd go, well, but could I see a white paper? And they would vanish. So we've not got one, but two published white papers that have shown statistically significant correlation between AIQ scores and on-field performance in meaningful stuff like, you know, batting averages, ERA, but in in football, going back to the reaction time stuff, uh, pre-snap penalties. So like offensive linemen and pre-snap penalties, which I don't know if you know this, but so I worked in the NFL for five years with two different teams. And one of the things that I discovered being in the building and attending all the meetings and stuff, you pick up these little nuggets of knowledge, right? So like, for example, if 
a team is in the red zone inside the 20 yard lines for scoring a touchdown and they commit a pre-snap penalty, the chances of scoring drops by 50%. Wow. Which is huge. So the fact that we can provide information that can help people identify goodness of fit with their organization and their organizational needs became kind of like a really cool thing. So, I mean, I think we've got something. That's all I can say. 100%. And I mean, that's one of the things that you, you know, you hear and it makes me think, I mean, I have, I have, I have too many questions to write. So, you know, for me, when I was an undergraduate, I remember the part that got me really interested just in the field of sports psychology was that concept of optimal experience to flow, right? And I'll always say his name wrong. Maybe you'll say it right, but I always call him Chikse Mahai. But, um, you know, I know I'm close. I know I'm wrong, but that's okay. When I first heard of that concept, I was fascinated. I was hooked right then and there because I was like, if we can better understand, number one, how to identify the state, number two, how to potentially repeat that state, then I could maybe better understand what happens when you watch the performance like back in the day, you'd see Jordan on a roll and you'd be like, well, he's just, there's no time or space. He's just there. And it's fascinating. And then what ritual, like, how do you repeat that experience? And as I recall, I think, and then now this is back photocopy days, man. But I, I, I knew I was hooked when I'm in my dorm room and I'm supposed to be lifting, but I'm reading this going, this is really quite interesting. And I think as I recall it, it was about mountain climbers, right? I mean, that was the first group that we were looking at here. And of course, pass fail is pretty easy. <laughs> the stakes are high. Uh, yeah. That's why, you know, when, when you're trying to learn to golf, maybe the best strategy is to bring one ball, <laughs> you know, like maybe for people understanding that maybe just go a little bit outside of it, because this will generalize very well to many things. How can we associate one's understanding of oneself, not necessarily organizationally, but let's say we get a semi-valid measure of who we are and how, what our strengths are. How can we think about that and putting ourselves into situations, whether it's, you know, choosing to be an accountant or choosing to be, you know, whatever it might be, what's a little bit of insight that you could help people take home, uh, given all of your training and understanding? So I love when the conversation goes in this direction, because I think a lot of people forget that the origin of psychology was philosophy. And what's really kind of neat right now is I feel a resurgence. in Agreed. The neuro philosophy where they're all kind of like coming up with some really, and, and the ideas are fascinating. So let's think about this. I was trained as a behaviorist by a guy named Kurt Salsinger, who was the APA director of science, really a brilliant mind. He was a direct descendant of, um, of Skinner. And wow. so, I mean, it was amazing. My two biggest mentors just to give them much love and gratitude is Kurt Salsinger was the science side. And then a guy named Albert Ellis, who created rational mode of behavior therapy on the clinical and applied side. Unbelievable training. So grateful. Going back to Kurt, Dr. Salzinger, he gave me this, this nugget that I've always held to where he said, look, like as a behaviorist, and it goes back to kind of what you said earlier, like if it can be measured, it can be managed. So that was a big part. In fact, one of his famous things is he, he actually trained a goldfish. That was like one of his huge pioneer, like he did a bunch of pioneering work with schizophrenia, but one of the things okay. people often know him for is he successfully used uh, um, operant conditioning. It was either operant conditioning or classical conditioning. I think it was classical conditioning, now that I think about it, where he used a lot of behavioral techniques to train a goldfish. He trained a goldfish. So wow. 
So he gave me this nugget where he said, look, thoughts are behaviors. They're just measured by the one person experiencing them. So he gave me the example of you can go to a dentist with a cavity and he can see the hole in the tooth. That is an objective measure that someone else can observe. But if he asks you about the pain, the only person who can report it is you. And really how you go about reporting it could have all kinds of rot errors. You could underreport it from maybe, you know, maybe you're trying to impress the dentist. You could overreport it because maybe you're trying to impress the dentist. And then it could just be that your scale, your subjective scale of pain is different than the dentist's subjective scale of pain. So what he often talked about was how special this N of one of measuring thoughts really is. Now, I bring this up because I love the concept of flow state. And I love that there is this general concept around all performance, not just athletics, but all performance where people will go, man, there is a moment where I am completely dialed in and everything feels like it's just how the world is supposed to be, this harmonic convergence. And whether we call it the flow, the zone, proximal, uh, you know, like optimal, there's so many terms. But what I think is really interesting is the people who are trying to study it are basing a lot of it off a self-report. And a lot of times it's asking the athlete after the experience. And as a guy who is in the box in the NFL and has been on sidelines for 20 years and stuff, I'm not so sure the way people describe it after they've experienced it is as laser focused as we would want it to be. So there's something really cool that happens. I think we all have universally experienced it. I don't know if we've all universally induced it. And I'm not so sure we can all universally define it, but there's something there and it's really cool to explore. <laughs> I see. I agree. I, I, I've asked this of many people because I, I remain very curious, but I'm still not yet satisfied that that's the thing. Like I, I'm not yet there, but I'm, I remain curious. You know, one of my greatest mentors created a behavioral neuroplastic program. Well, you know, Norman Deutsch that Deutsch interviewed her on and, and all of that. My job around Norman Joyce is just to be quiet and stay in my lane. Whenever I found myself at a table around him, I was just like, okay, I'm around savants. So I just need to be quiet. And then oh. inevitably I would ask questions. Uh, <laughs> like, damn. Uh, but, you know, I, I like that answer because I, I feel like there's a lot yet to be better understood around this. Because if it was that easy, we would all just have the recipe and we'd be baking all day. But that's not the case. And just because we should hold on that statement, because I use that line too. There's a lot of times where a GM or a head coach will go, Scott, should I take this guy or not? And I'm kind of like, look, I can provide my objective measure of AIQ or my subjective measure of my psychological profile of the individual. But what I can't do is predict. If I could predict, not only would I predict more often, I'd probably charge five times what I'm currently charging. And then I'd probably migrate to something that's more significant, like ending terrorism or, you know, pedophilia. Like there's a lot of things out there that are way more important than getting a ball in the hoop or three more yards. And so I often point out to individuals that are outside of sport that if you have a financial advisor, what do they need your money for? If they're so good with making money, like they should all be retired. And the reason why 
is because the stock market is one of the greatest universal illustrations of how it's not really how good the company is. It's only how good we perceive the company to be that causes the stock to rise or fall. And the perception is a fascinating human behavior. And that's the space that I like to dance in with the teams I'm working for. Oh, it's so exciting. It's uh, such a such an interesting perspective that you don't hear. You don't hear that very often, but I think it's I think it's so insightful. And you know, one of the areas that I continue to be really intrigued by is harnessing the potential for positive neurological change. And that's an area where on the injury side, I was most interested initially because I was just curious about that concept around brain injury. Because I'll share with you, when I was in university, tore my ACL, tore rotator cuff. I mean, of course, I was a D lineman. It's kind of normal. Those orthopedic challenges. But when the concussions happened, it was like, no, sit and wait. And I love that our connection on philosophy, I'm all about it. It was like, no, I'm curious about that. Why sit and wait? And then I came to learn, interesting. They don't want to do the scan because they need to better understand if we have a bleed or not. Oh, because that's the that's the big risk in the first, you know, four, let's say 24, 48 hours. And then once there, if we identify that there is persisting cognitive, you know, symptom presentation or actual damage in 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 the network, let's say, then what do we do? And I love what you talk about around the subjectivity because. Typically in a lot of athletes, I would think still the same. That's what I struggle with around a lot of the other assessments around neurological health and cognition was, uh, of course, they're going to get the scat and they're going to just, you know, they're going to fake it. And that's what everybody's doing with their impact tests too. And uh, of course they are. That's actually a great sign of intelligence. If they're going into a season of closing sports and they're going to enter, it's actually probably a good sign um, that they're thinking. So I remain very interested in the concept of also, of course, training performance, but also in some capacities, it was always on the injury side, more so how do we up-train cognition? And that's what led me into an inquiry with the University of British Columbia, doing two clinical trials with them and yielding peer-reviewed publication with Sean, who was on the call earlier, trying to say, okay, what do we do about this subset of the population? And if we can measure it properly, that was always my question, using MRI, EEG, neuropsych, we use the NIH uh, toolkit, you know, cognitive, but the Woodcock-Johnson, I think is a very good measure as well. Uh, But, you know, it's been curious to me that, you know, there's an openness scientifically to better understand how to not only support those who may have been injured due to stroke, neurological cancers, Mm. those sorts of things, but also how do we train up some of this? Or is it even possible to do that? And we're learning that in some cases, absolutely it is. And that's exciting to see, especially given assessments, if we're looking at trying to train up someone to be able to reason fluidly, uh, more complex levels, I continue to be really fascinated by this and also really frustrated by it at the same time. (laughs) Because limitless is what we want. We want that movie. We want that pill. We want, the, we want that, that special supplement, right? Okay. But I'm curious about that topic and what your thoughts are around that. Because obviously diet, nutrition, those things are extremely important. But also you will have a profile that is generated, right? That will help us to better understand, is this somebody that, that you know, is more on the Peyton Manning side or more on the Ryan Leaf side, right? All right, if you live in North or West Van and you're looking for a chiropractor that really gets it and is committed to you and your success, look no further. The Pelly Clinic is a team of remarkable people committed to you and your health and achieving your goals. Dr. Todd Pelly uh, has been a member of our network for years. 
He's very much committed to you and your health and your success. And if he can't answer your question, which I'm pretty confident he can, but if he can't, he will find the right person to help you out. So again, if you're out there looking for the kind of person that can really help you to improve your function, your capacities, and your overall health, look no further. Check out the Pelly Clinic in North Vancouver. You'll be happy you did. So there's a lot of stuff to digest there, and you make some really strong points. I think here's the dilemma. Yeah. I think the dilemma is people have been selling cures, tinctures Mm -hmm. for hundreds of years. You know, I mean, there's a reason why the expression is snake oil salesman. There's a reason why it's called a con artist, right? And so some of the places where we are most susceptible as a society is like things like arthritis, because it's more of a subjective measure. And also cognitive functioning because, you know, it's like, is he performing at a high level right now because he drank a cup of coffee this morning? Mm. Is it because he, um, you know, had a, a sexual experience the night before or that he didn't have a sexual experience? Like, there's so many things that can mess with chemistry in our bodies, oxytocin and yeah. endorphins and all of these other kinds of things that, you know, it becomes one of these things where how do you isolate So I think, you know, one of the places that I start as a gatekeeper for the teams that I work for is I go, okay, is this a really neat idea or is there actually some empirical validation and some empirical support and not just in the world of science, but also in its application for the way that we want to use it. So for example, if they, if they show me a study that talks about people over the age of 65 and the improvement in being able to maintain a driver's license after receiving the treatment. I go, man, that's really good. That's awesome that it exists that way. But I'm not so sure that that works for a 27-year-old football player the way you're describing it to me. More research, further inspection is warranted kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So going back to the AIQ, here's what we did. We said, we're going to be a descriptor, even though we have those statistically significantly correlated on-field performance at Major League Baseball and at the NFL, like with those athletes, like even though you can say, hey, there's some prediction there. It's like, no, 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 that's a correlation. There's other factors that come into play. In fact, a couple, both Major League Baseball and NFL and NBA teams have told us that they have found more statistically significant correlation to on-field performance and on-court performance than what we found when they added other measurables like height and wingspan and stuff. And we're like, oh, can you share that with us? And they're like, "Mm, that's kind of our secret (laughs) sauce. (laughs) So we're like, okay, cool. (laughs) But even though we have all of that, what we really focused on was being a descriptor. This is how this person thinks. This is how this person processes the situation. So if you want to really oversimplify the definition of intelligence, Intelligence is the ability to acquire, process, and apply information. So when a running back catches the ball, has to rotate 180 degrees, catches the ball on a screen pass, rotates 180 degrees, has to identify where his lead blocks are, where's the second line of attack, and where the end zone is, first down market. That's a really complicated puzzle. 
So we said, all right, we've got these cognitive abilities. We found an accurate way to measure it, but we got to cross the finish line here. So we created specific, not just sports specific, but position specific analysis and recommendations. And here's something that I think, you know, again, as the kids like to say today, a humble brag, because (laughs) I had access to 20 years of really meaningful relationships with coaches and players, mostly coaches, I could go to them and say, if I were to kind of describe a soccer player, like a midfielder this way, if I were to describe a defenseman in hockey this way, would that be translatable? Would that like, so, you know, if we're talking basketball, if I use the phrase pick and pop and I use it this way, is that accurate? Is that helpful? And so that has always been our process. And so I I think one of the things that differentiates us versus, hey, why don't we just use the Woodcock Johnson? Right. Is there's a few things. One is we've got a very specialized population. So we're comparing you to the elite sample that we've collected, not to everyone in America. Two, we've got this really good spot on coach created, sports psychologist created dialogue. So that way people can put it into meaningful play. And then um, it's really kind of about coming up with simple interventions for sophisticated problems, you know? So for example, um, uh, I was going over a report with a player and a coach uh, earlier this week, and it was for an NFL team. And I asked the coach, I said, do you play music during installs? And so for those that are listening, you might not know what an install is. Players are basically in a classroom setting, watching film and learning the plays they're going to put on Sunday. So I know this because sometimes these players are under-recovered. They start to fall asleep in these very static environments, like the film sessions. So the coaches combat that by playing some music. Let's get some juice flow in the room. So I asked, you know, do you do that? And the coach says, yeah, 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 I got to bring the juice. (laughs) And so I turned to the player. I said, do you struggle when the music's on? And he said, how did you know that? looking at your AIQ data, and I noticed that you might be a little bit susceptible to distractions. And the coach goes, well, what do I do? Because I need to kind of keep the room awake. I said, well, here's the trade-off. Music to stimulate the room might mean that this particular player who's really important is going to get less information delivered. So I said, what's the alternative? I said, the alternative is if some of the players are starting to look fatigued, have them stand or you get the Swiss balls and have them sit on a Swiss yep. ball where they have to activate their core and, and maintain a level of balance versus if they start to snooze, they'll fall. And I said, those things would be more stimulating without the distraction. Oh man. I love this. Like, so I'll share a great failure of mine. Uh, <laughs> when I was at the school, when I was at the school, I got lots of them. When I was in <laughs> schools running the, um, a school for kids with learning disabilities and deploying some of this neuroplastic curriculum along with standard, you know, state, required you know academic curriculum i remember we held a conference and there's someone you would know and he's one of the coolest i think i hope you don't hate him um dr john rady we brought him into one of our conferences and uh I got, i'm like okay rady's coming he he's like one of my academic idols so i'm like i'm you know i'm coming with me i'm not going to try to be too much of a fanboy but i'll bring my copy of spark with me and because i had a lot of questions right i just had a ton of questions and i was really curious because i'm like how can we, I love the concept and it fits so well with what we're talking about, limitless, right? But effort, like focused effort 
And integration, maybe. And, and that's what I loved about what he did just outside of Chicago there was, okay, let's look at it, at, at how, you know, aerobic exercise can support sustained attention uh, independent of pharmaceutical supports, which still in some cases are, are going to be needed, I think. And I love talking with him because he did like you, like he did the rigor. That's what I loved about him. He's like, no, I did all the, I had my hypothesis, but I did all the research behind it. And then I still came up with the conclusion that in, in many cases for an attention disorder, I can prescribe aerobic exercise. And for those listening, sorry, we're nerding out a bit here. I apologize, but there's a great <laughs> book that I'm talking about that many are aware of called Spark by Dr. John Rady. And I think it's a, it's a great, it, it, it relates to some of what Scott's talking about here at a base level. And it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that I think about oftentimes, I, I really do think about this. And, you know, one of the areas I thought was interesting with some of the students I worked with, but also some of the athletes and musicians I worked with was this concept of cognitive priming. And, and I, was, I was fascinated by it because some of the work that we do, it's more kind of rigorous, but I was thinking if we could get 10 minutes of cognitive priming before trying to teach a lesson or a new concept, like an install, it seems in educational settings, uh, in learning settings, that it sticks better for those that might struggle in those particular instances at the appropriate level. And that's so cool that the AIQ can pick that. I just, I love that. Well, and I, and, you know, kudos to you for even coming up with the concept of cognitive priming. Cause again, it's like, these are simple things that cost the team nothing. And yet they amplify the product. Like, every single collective bargaining agreement, again, not to say always, never, and every day, <laughs> it's like the last three or four collective bargaining agreements. One of the negotiations is time. Players want less time. Of course. Coaches want more time. And I think if we can improve the efficiency of time on task, then everybody's happy because the coaches don't want more time. What the coaches want is more depth and comprehension, which they know to do through time. You got to get your reps in. And the players are like, hey, man, my body can't handle all of these reps. So what can we do to bridge that gap? You know, the other thing that I would want to point out, just going on a slight tangent, is um, again, another humble brag about the AIQ. We purposely chose items that were robust to socioeconomic status, race, religion, country of origin, dominant language. And to me, that's something that I think is really important because some of the criticisms of the instruments that existed before we came up with ours was that there was a cultural bias, which there is. And, and one of the reasons why we chose it. So I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And if you've ever taken like a Wexler scale, one of the intelligence questions on the Wexler scale is what's a schooner? Well, I don't know what a schooner is because I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and that is a landlocked city. <laughs> like there's no, there's no water, much less boats. And for those that don't know, I had to look it up. A schooner is a boat. <laughs> so I always was like, man, that's BS that I'm dubbed less intelligent because of where I came from. So when we selected the items, we made sure that we weren't asking questions like, you know, what's a schooner? We were showing them these cognitive tasks like um, navigating space. You know, it looks like something like Tetris for those of us that are over the age of 40 or something like Candy Crush for everybody <laughs> that could be listening. And those kinds of tasks, it doesn't matter if you know what a schooner is. So 
it's not just about going after simple solutions. It's also about making sure that you're not introducing any kind of bias to the nature of it. Because what, because again, <laughs> you go after that simple solution and it turns out that that's a cultural bias and you've got yourself an issue and, and not to go on a tangent, but you reminded me of when I first started working, I worked in a psychiatric hospital mm. and I remember it was in New Mexico and there was a lot of uh, individuals from some of the, the tribal nations in New Mexico. So indigenous and part of their culture to show deference was to avoid eye contact. Mm. But you saw a lot of practitioners, and this is like back in the 90s, who were saying, look at me when I'm talking to you. And there was a therapeutic misfire there that was significant. The other thing that you reminded me was, and I wasn't doing this off of any kind of science or anything, I would wake the the I worked with adolescents. I'd wake them up at six in the morning, and we'd go for like a two mile run to start the day. And about a month after we started that program, the psychiatrist came to me and said, "I've noticed a decrease in the prescription in the dosage for your unit compared to other units. What do you think's going on?" I was like, "I don't know, but I think it might have been the fact that we were running in the morning." Well, to put it into context, I absolutely love what you said. To put it into context, you know, what if that wasn't reported, right? Like, like in the schools, I remember when I was, again, more to my failure. In the schools, I was like, you know, how am I going to, now I know this. I always believed that this was the case. And I, you know, I'd read enough to know that it was clearly good for the brain. But after I, I read that book, I was like, oh my God. And one of my mentors, Howard Eaton, who's, you know, highly trained, highly educated, he was like, we need to find a way to do this. And I'm like, okay, I've got to figure this out. And we never really got around to it. We did kind of like running clubs, those sorts of things. But then as I was touring, doing some of this research that, you know, I've been a part of, you know, every lab I went to, there was running logs on every wall, all the PhDs, postdocs, docs, everybody's doing it. I'm like, okay, they'll only do things that's the science backs. And ever since probably we started this, I'm, I'm now a full on runner, not that I love it. I take more of the Goggins approach that I hate it so much that I know I need to keep doing it to, to stay resilient. So, you know, I think about if we're not actually tracking it, though, I come back to process, which I really respect what you're suggesting is that if we're actually quantifying and then measuring the in-game performance, but tracking everything that led up to that, that is very, very important here. Because I think that oftentimes many of us are not doing that clinically. And because of that, we're not experiencing the kind of efficiency and outcomes that we would like to see, given the amount of resourcing that we're putting towards it. And that's Amen. what we've seen on the rehabilitation side, like without question, in building this organization that we're still building. And it's all been out of, you know, really a, a quest, a passion. So I really admire what you're doing. I think it's cool what you're doing. And I know it's hard building new things. I get it. But I think it's really cool that you're taking this approach and I'm excited to see where it's go where it's going to continue to go. Oh man, honestly, that's that's a heck of a compliment. I really appreciate you on that. Thank you. You know, it's it's interesting, right? This is sort of the trajectory that I see in the world of sports is, you know, let's assume all gates are are held open in the right way. Like so you'll take a really good empirically validated idea. Mm-hmm. And then you start to educate. There's a lot of resistance or reluctance, like, nah, you know, prove it to me. And then all of a sudden it starts to gain traction. 
And then you get this like sweet spot where really good work is being done. And then you get this post sweet spot that I, I call it dilution. So like growth mindset, mindfulness, yeah. like there are all these like really good empirically validated practice that was being put into play correctly. And then I'm going to hit this saturation point where now all of a sudden everybody's going, yeah, let's talk about mindfulness. And I'm like, um, you're using the word and you believe in the concept, but I'm not quite sure you're actually following any kind of empirically validated protocol. And that's something that we should go back to. Otherwise, people go, oh, yeah, this is all a bunch of mumbo jumbo stuff. I, I got yeah. shit for that one at the schools. I'll never forget. So we had Carol Dweck come and speak at one of our conferences. And I was just, again, same kind of thing, curious. Uh, but like, you know, she's, again, very humble, really cool, interesting. And, you know, how she still teaches, I don't know if she still does, but that that undergraduate class. I think that's so cool that she keeps on going. But I think more about, you know, I really struggle with that concept of mindfulness because I mean, I'm that guy. I'll show you. Like I, I'm like the real deal failure all the time. I wear this thing every day. Okay. Like every day, because I still want to quantify some of it. And uh, for those of you, sorry, this is, you may not have seen it. I just held up a muse. Okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a, like a consumer grade. It's like, like the Nerf football of, uh, of, of EEG stuff. They're trying to help us to better understand kind of how we're doing against ourselves day to day for meditation. And I struggle with that concept because everybody says they're mindful and I live in Vancouver. So Lululemon and all that, everybody's so darn mindful, but it's easy to say, it's actually quite a hard thing to do. And what it actually means is acknowledging your actual distraction is, and, and then trying to bring yourself back. It's actually not what well, it's sold as sometimes, right? Well, so I remember I came across a study where they, they said that 20% of antidepressant medication can be attributed to placebo effect. And everybody loved the article or a lot of people loved the article because they were going, ha ha, see, like, this is all fake, you know, 20% yeah. to placebo. And I, I was like, no, no, no. I think there's a different way to think about this, which is if someone puts a pill in their mouth, whether it's sugar or not, and they feel a difference, 20%, the process of still putting the pill in their mouth is important. Right. So going back to the device and I'm not vilifying any device. No, no, I'm with you. Don't worry. It's all good. But what I'm saying is like just the fact that you've invested a couple hundred dollars in a product and it's forcing you to engage in something. So my, my dad, if I can go on a slight. Yeah, you know, please. Home, please. My dad, who's like my hero, and my mentor. He is a world famous nephrologist kidney yeah. specialist folks kidney kidney specialist. in fact like i'm the least successful person in my family i i'm very fortunate i've had some wonderful people in my family and my dad leads the pack so my dad gave me this one once and i always went god brilliant so he goes look if an alien were to come from mars and goes to a bar and the alien goes to the bar and he sees the first patron drinking orange juice and vodka and then he goes to the next patron and the next patron's drinking orange juice and gin. And then he goes to the third patron and the third patron is drinking orange juice and tequila. The alien would rightfully conclude that orange juice gets you drunk. Exactly. And I've always kind of held on to that example because I think it's important to recognize 
that there's something going on here, but it might not necessarily be what people think it is. And that's where like Lindsay Shaw, who I was mentioning to you earlier, like, yes. she is brilliant at helping kind of tease out some of what is good and being done. And some of like, she's great at teasing out the orange juice for the tequila. I love it. You know, I love it. No, I, I, um, I appreciate you, man. And I, I think that what you're bringing to this work is, is really exciting. Uh, as somebody who sports been a huge, huge part of my life, but I know it's about a lot more than that. And I think really, you know, for the people listening here, if you wouldn't mind just kind of distilling out the importance of good assessment, maybe just generalizing that, like, and no matter what you might be facing in your life, right? Why is it important to ensure that you're feeling satisfied with the level of assessment that you're getting? And that relates to many different things like second opinions on things. And, you know, it could be grading. It could be any number of things. You know, here you are somebody who's highly accomplished, but is really um, focused on trying to better understand really assessment, right? As if we are looking to generalize it. Well, I think if I were to just kind of twist it just a little bit, mm-hmm. I think for me, my passion and my purpose is about human behavior. I really have always been curious about human behavior and human interaction. And human interaction is a multiplier of it because, you know, person A is pretty complicated. Person B is very complicated. And when person A and person B get together, that new thing, which we'll call relationship C, is a multiplier of their own complications, Mm -hmm. the interaction complications. So I bring that up because I was first drawn to this field when I I would look at a pair of shoes. Like, let's say you're wearing a pair of shoes. I go, why are you wearing that? Like all behavior has meaning. Are you wearing them because they're your lucky shoes? They're your most comfortable shoes. They were the shoes you were running out because um, you were running late to work and they were the shoes closest to the door. Like, so I just got fascinated by human behavior. And I think part of being a curious explorer, I think we share that bond. Part 100%. of being a curious explorer is you know, making sure that when you're observing and analyzing, that you're doing it with instrumentation that's accurate. Otherwise, you run the risk of concluding that orange juice gets you drunk. And so I think the reason why my two worlds started to blend, me as a sports psychologist and the AIQ, was it allowed for a dialogue that helped us kind of, like sometimes I use this metaphor with coaches where I go, you know, when we're trying to solve the problem, you know, how to get the quarterback to release the ball sooner, how to get, you know, the, the, the two guard to come off the screen and, and catch and release, catch and shoot. It's almost like looking for keys in your house. You know, like we've all been in that situation. Like, God, where did I put my keys? And so you go, well, you know, I'm going to go look in the kitchen and they're not there. And they go, I'm going to go look in the living room and they're not there. And knowing where your keys are not is really incredibly valuable. And if you go, gosh, I've looked in every room but the bathroom, but it wouldn't be in the bathroom. That's crazy. But you've looked. With that said, if you go into the kitchen and you don't really look, you just go, "Eh," you scan it or you ask somebody else, hey, have you seen my keys in that room? That's not really super sharp. And so I think what's really interesting is we are now in a phase of society or civilization and growth where introspection has become really big right now. 
And I think what's somewhat dangerous, like I love the exploration, but all explorations come with a little bit of danger. What's somewhat dangerous is like, you know, you can answer some self-report measure on a Facebook link. Yep. The way 20, 30 years ago, you could look in a Vogue magazine and it's like, oh, is he right for you? Like those things can be fun and can be novel, but they also can have you accidentally conclude something that's just not really accurate or consistent. And so I think the thing that I like about the AIQ and why I rely on it more than like say a personality measure is to your point earlier, intelligence is a genetically stable trait. There's a predominant theory out there that really says it's pretty stable. It's pretty tried and true. It's like eye color or height. And therefore it's something that you can really dialogue about versus um, there was a, a great study that came out not too long ago uh, personality inventory. They did it with a personality inventory where they tested the same sample population three weeks mm. apart. Yeah. 50% of the population had a totally different profile. And really? Yep. So to me, it's like we're just trying to highlight the signal, minimize the noise, and give really good information so that people can make well informed decisions. And that's what the AI is. Yeah. I love it. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on and sharing your world with us. Um, oh, my pleasure. I, I, for me, it was selfishly a, a lot of fun just to, to learn more about kind of what brought you into this work and what continues to motivate you. And, you know, it's something that, you know, maybe at the time it presents itself, I'd love to do again and dig a little bit deeper on it because I think there's a lot there to unpack and, and learn about uh, from and with you. So just thank you again. And, you know, if this one kind of hit home for you, share it within your network, look up the AIQ, uh, you'll find it everywhere. The click on the show notes, that will be in there for you. And just uh, any kind of websites you wanted to plug just uh, so people could find you a little bit easier. You know, I appreciate you offering. We have a $0 marketing budget. So even though we've been across five major leagues, we're just a couple of dudes that had an idea. So we've been, <laughs> we've, people have been finding us more than anything else. So I wish I could say like, I've got a cool thing that you could snap or click or whatever, but I would just say this, like, if you want to reach me directly, it's just my last name, Goldman, G-O-L-D-M-A-N at athleticintel.com. And if you want to learn more about the AIQ, you can go to our website, which is athleticintel.com. Love it. Please share this episode. This was a really cool one. We've done a lot of really interesting episodes, but this one uh, had a special twist to it. So please, please share it. Uh, We covered a lot of important items. So uh, thanks again. We'll see you on the next episode. Stay on for a quick sec if you can. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery Podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the Bears platform, 
We've tried to make it easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Our training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neural rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.